You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Hello and welcome to today's virtual Inforum program at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Marisa Lagos. I am a correspondent for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, and I co-host the Political Breakdown show and podcast. I'm going to be your moderator today. Uh, before we get started, we would also like to thank the Club Psychology Forum for partnering on today's event. Um, I'm really excited today to be joined by two leading advocates to discuss the recent legal and political challenges to abortion rights and the uncertainty that lies ahead. Alexis McGill-Johnson is president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Federation of America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. She's been Planned Parenthood leadership for more than a decade as PPFA board chair, Planned Parenthood federal PAC chair, and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund board member. Alexis, welcome. Minita Maraju is president of Narrow Pro-Chase America. She is a seasoned campaigner and organizational leader with over 20 years of experience leading federal, state, and local campaigns and advocacy efforts around reproductive rights, gender justice, and racial justice. So today we're going to talk about the tidal wave of anti-abortion bills that have been introduced in state legislatures. We're going to talk about what's ahead for Roe v. Wade, which will be decided by the Supreme Court probably later this year. Um, and we want your questions on what is obviously a sensitive and often controversial topic. So if you're watching along with us, you can put them in the text chat on YouTube and we'll be getting them to them later in the program. Welcome to both of you, Minnie. I didn't let you say hi. Thank you for being here. <laughs> so I wanted to start off, I gave a little bit of your bios, but to talk a little bit about yourselves and how you came to this work. Um, Alexis, I thought we'd start with you. You were a researcher by training. You founded, uh, co-founded an institute called the Perception Institute that uses science to help reduce racial bias and discrimination. So Planned Parenthood, <laughs> like, how, how did you come to this work? I know. And, you know, and to be honest, I'm like, I was a self-described race woman, right? Like I grew up understanding, you know, living intersectionality, obviously, but but really growing up in a household where um, race was the dominant frame through which we kind of understood our lives, our work, and, um, and so much of my research. And so it happened that one day I was walking down the street in New York City and there was this billboard with this young black girl's face on that I just, you know, instinctively looked up to see like, you know, young black girls don't often sell things. Let me see what she's, I need, I'm going to need to go buy. She's so cute. And I got closer to the billboard and there were words underneath um, that said, the most dangerous place for an African-American is in the womb. And it just stopped me dead in my tracks. I got so enraged about just the demonization of Black women and our reproductive choices. Damned if we do, damned if we don't. And um, and I remember being at a um, at a dinner party with Cecile Richards. Uh, then president. And, um, and I went up to her and, you know, literally was like, do you know what's happening uh, down in Soho? Do you understand like what is at stake right now? And, and black women. And, you know, I just went on to this whole rant at her and I said, you need to do something about it. And she said, no, 
you need to do something about it. And, um, and she recruited me to the board uh, in a nomination process that um, was supported by none other than Minnie Timraju, <laughs> who was my Perfect. first point of contact into the organization. True. <laughs> but literally, you know, have, have um, stayed on the board um, and, and got a, a, a you know, I got to ride jump seat as Cecile's board chair and really understand just kind of what had been happening over the last decade. It was, was you know, all in. Awesome. Uh, well, Minnie, your work has focused on the intersection of race and gender, but you've kind of, I talked about the political work, but you've also had corporate roles. You've worked for nonprofits. Why this, and this issue specifically in there all now? <clears throat> yeah, no, it's so interesting. So um, I'm a Planned Parenthood alum. And as Alexis said, I was working for Cecile. And part of my portfolio was managing the board when she became a board member. So it's really exciting and fun to be back in this role with her uh, being able to partner. Um, you know, I'm an immigrant kid. My parents immigrated uh, to, from India to the United States in the early 70s. Um, really to pursue the traditional American dream. You know, they thought, hey, here's the land of opportunity. They were very progressive. I have a, a feminist uh, throughout my generations of my life. My aunt ran a feminist press in India. You know, my mother uh, was my first role model. So we just assumed, you know, I, I, she tells stories about she first came to this country and she saw Barbara Jordan on television and she was like, this is such a great country. Women can do anything. This is the best place in the world to raise my daughter. So we just assumed we were going to always have these rights. Um, you know, I grew up in Texas, uh, so got an early taste at the intersection of race and gender personally. And that really did yeah. fuel my political uh, fire. Went to college at UC Berkeley. I have to shout out Go Bears uh, since I'm talking <laughs> to the Commonwealth Club. And that definitely got me uh, thinking about all the intersections and much more politically conscious. So um, yeah. I was always very active in gender justice, did, did a lot of work in the domestic violence movement early on in my career. Uh, but like like Alexis, you know, sometimes it just takes someone reaching out to you and saying, hey, there's a really cool opportunity. I was working for my local congressman. Um, somebody on the Planned Parenthood Houston board said, hey, there's a really cool opportunity for a leadership role with Planned Parenthood here in Texas. And crazy things are happening in the legislature. You'd be so good in this role. Uh, so I shifted gears and ended up working for Planned Parenthood for almost four years in the state level and the national level. Um but yeah, I, I, I joke that uh, it's probably a bad joke my team doesn't want me to make that I can't keep a job. I think a lot of us in uh, politics, you kind of go back and forth. You know, you work on a campaign, you go into government, you go into a nonprofit, you become an advocate. Uh, after Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 and I worked on that campaign, I was pretty lost, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Had some great friends in corporate America who were like, try this out. Uh, and I learned a lot. And it's really it was really great perspective to bring back uh, into uh, NARAL as we're trying to think about future of work, um, really building sustainable long-term organization in a time when the movement's really fraught uh, and under a lot of challenges. So uh, yeah. I've been really blessed. I've had a lot of great opportunities. Well, that's a great segue to my second question, which I would love each of you to kind of weigh in on why it's so important that you are both women of color doing this work, like the intersectionality between racism and reproductive rights, lack thereof. Um, and we see this, you know, not just because of data around that people of color constitute the majority of abortion procedures, but also that we saw this maternal health data out today, which is just devastating. Um, so uh, Alexis, let's go back to you. Like, wh why does it matter? Because Y'all look different than the people that were helming Planned Parenthood and Nero just a few years ago. 
Yeah, it looks different and it feels different, I hope. Um, it, um, you know, this is a moment where, um, and, and consistently has been, a place where um, women of color, people of color, um, seeking sexual and reproductive health care face different barriers, multiple barriers. And, um, you know, at Perception, I talked a lot about or did a lot of work on, um, you know, a phenomena called intersectional invisibility, right? That, that most of us, uh, from a gendered standpoint, from a binary standpoint, are seen through a lens of, of um, uh, as woman from outside. And, um, and yet the way in which, you know, um, people of color are seen, it's through a prism of race first. And, um, and that impacts the ways in which they are treated. Um, throughout the healthcare system. And so to have representation at this level, um, people who understand both what the capacity and power of the work is, and also how it sits inside of a larger ecosystem that at its center has to serve um, women and partners and leaders of color, um, it just makes a, um, a really important, uh, not just statement, but, you know, an opportunity to really do um, significant work to undo, I think, you know, um, um, white supremacy to undo ways in which I think our movements have um, have have kept intersectional invisibility alive, and so I think it's really important for us in in these moments to also be a um, an accountability face, right? Um, you know, someone who um, can hold the accountability with love and understand that it's not personal, but but um, intended to to move the the organization and the movement in in a direction that is going to really affirm the people who are most impacted right now. Right. Well, and many on your work doing, you know, advocacy, I would assume it's also important to pull people in at all levels of that, right? It's not just the leader of an organization, but making sure that this is not just a conversation that is happening among maybe more affluent or whiter people, but then is, is impacting people of color. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I agree with everything Alexis said, and I'm a huge fan of her work at Perception Institute when she was there. What I'll say is to, to piggyback off of that, you know, the majority of um, Planned Parenthood's clients, the majority of men and women and people, pregnant people in this country who are impacted by ban abortion bans, for example, and restricted access to comprehensive reproductive health care are people of color. So it's always been challenging that our movements were not necessarily led by people of color. Um, and you really have, it's really hard to properly advocate for communities that you're not necessarily connected to. It's not impossible. A lot of wonderful people do it, uh, but we could do better. I think what, what what's a little scary in this moment is, you know, there's so many incredible attacks, uh, on, which is the topic we're here to talk about on abortion uh, that are disproportionately affecting uh, marginalized communities that have always disproportionately affected marginalized communities. And there's this moment where so many of our organizations are now being led by people of color. So I think it's important to acknowledge uh, that we bring a critical perspective, that we can really live our values and demonstrate inclusion and equity, but we also can't magically transform legacy organizations that were helmed by white feminists for a very long time and that have potentially done historical damage. Damage, uh, have also done really good work, but have also been fraught. So I think um, it's a journey. Uh, we're going to be doing a lot of uh, collective work across our movements to really uh, model inclusivity. But you know, we need partners to do that as well. We can't. We can't do it alone. Yeah. Um, I noticed that you talk about men and women. Um, 
and I assume non-binary folk. I mean, talk about why that framing, because it, because it does seem like a lot of this conversation is just about the person who gets pregnant, which is obviously very important. We need to center that person. But like, um, does that language struck me, many? So I'll say, um, one, I think when we talk about non-binary people, we talk about pregnant people, we're all getting better. Part of the inclusivity of the moment is to understand that not only women get pregnant, and we're in a new frontier of gender justice, uh, younger people really leading the way and transforming the way we think and we do this work. Um, and it's really exciting to me. Uh, and our movements are so interconnected. I think we saw today some really scary stuff happening in Texas, um, attacks on trans families. Uh, it's a perfect example of how all of our issues are interconnected, right? How we have to stand up for each other. But why are men important? You know, men <laughs> men uh, get pregnant in their own way too. They're they're the other part of the equation in uh, you know a heterosexual couple or even in a gay couple, right? And they have pregnancy justice issues too. They have reproductive health issues too. Um, they are deeply affected by access to abortion bans. And younger men in particular are getting better and better about being advocates for the comprehensive care their families need. So we cannot really truly win gender justice without male, not male allies, but men understanding that they have skin in the game. They are literally, their families are affected, right? They are personally affected. Their ability to have a future and a family are connected. So it's been wonderful to see men get more involved in issues like paid family leave, uh, reproductive rights, uh, and we need to see more of that. All right, before we move on to all all the news of the day, gosh, it's like, you know, spreadsheet of all the bills and um, but Alexis, do you just want to give us a, a quick overview of how your two orgs work together? Planned Parenthood, right, provides vital health services to, I think, two and a half million people around the country every year, 600 healthcare centers. Narrow Purchase America is more of an advocacy uh, group. So what is, you know, what are the roles that maybe are different, but like, how do you work together? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we are a provider, right? That is the majority of our our work. It is the majority of of you know, it is exactly why why we exist, um, and it is our mission. Um, but the mission needs protection, um, and uh, we have an action fund and a you know, a set of um, um, electoral arm that coordinates uh, quite closely in strong partnership with NARAL, um, both in state and at the national level. Um, and I think that, you know, to, to Minnie's points around like, uh, um, you know, our organizations being really um, pivotal um, from from having the ground game, right? From having the the, the army of folks, um, the number of supporters who come to us specifically for this issue um, inside of the ecosystem. Um, how important it is for us as as um, you know drivers, particularly in this moment, to you know make sure that the engine is is warm, that you know that the, there's gas in it, um, and in partnership with our kind of states. Uh, states leaders, as well as our reproductive justice colleagues, you know, um, deciding where to, you know, where to deploy. But our action fund um, is uh, in concert, really focused on accountability and ensuring that we are, you know, doing everything we can to protect the mission. Great. All right, well, let's get into it. Um, as I said, there are dozens of states who have either passed or are considering laws. Um, many of them are sort of tying it to this Mississippi case and the potential for the Supreme Court to either overturn or severely undermine Roe v. Wade. So, Minnie, could we start with that? Like, why this case? Um, what is there something specific about the way that law was written? Um, is there a strategy that was sort of undertaken to get this in front of this court, um, knowing that obviously we've watched as 
you know, it's become a more conservative court over the past few years. Yeah, uh, I think there, the strategy has been uh, Roe Ro is 49 years old. This is a 49-year strategy. Uh, there has been uh, year after year of attacks at uh, the state level, the national level, federal level on reproductive health. We've seen since Roe, we saw Planned Parenthood v. Casey. We've seen state legislation across the country that's already whittled away at the protections of Roe. Roe was always intended to be the floor, not the ceiling, but unfortunately it hasn't played out that way. So uh, I think- that Can you just explain exactly what Roe says? Because I think sometimes we like gloss over that, you know? Yeah, I will say that, you know, Roe gives us fundamental constitutional protection for the right to access abortion. Now, there's a lot, I will I will confess, I am not a constitutional scholar. I get a little tripped up, and Alexis, you can jump in and help me here if you, if you care to, uh, on the viability standard. But there is a, a lot of specific, it's a, it's a case that was decided based on privacy and on viability. Now, this case, and this is important, um, even though I, I caveated that I'm not a constitution. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Our contention, and we're all in agreement on this, that there's no way for the court to uphold a 15-week ban on abortion and not gut or undercut or eliminate Roe because of the way Roe was decided. So we have a constitutional protection for access to abortion, but the way it was decided was always a little bit challenging, a little bit fraught. And I'll pause there and let my yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just yeah, jump in here from the, from the provider perspective. Yeah, and on and on the pre viability standard, right? So so yeah, yeah. Um, so what Roe says is that any abortion pre viability, right? It, meaning um, if a fetus can survive outside of the womb by itself, um, that is when a state has interest in, um, in, in stopping the, the procedure or being involved in that, in that question. But anything pre viability is the decision of the person who is pregnant. And so what is important, and we've seen this, uh, you know, over the last decade, right? We've seen 20-week bans, um, Mississippi personhood ban, right? We've seen six-week bans. All of these have been struck down by the court system because they are clearly blatantly unconstitutional. Um, and in uh, in this case, the fact that the court was willing to t first take up a 15-week ban, right, and not just say it is unconstitutional, um, and even, and I know we'll dig deeper, listen to their oral arguments and ask these questions about whether or not it was correctly decided, um, because this is, you know, obviously a federal protection is over, um, is uh, asserting its authority over states' rights, which is also another trope, which we should get into, um, becomes really important. But I think what the, the, the ultimate thing here is, not ultimate, but, you know, another critical piece here, right, is that Roe is decided based on viability standards, based on privacy and the 14th Amendment, um, not on equality, <laughs> not on freedom, not on some of the core, you know, issues, of which we think of when we actually talk about our freedom to decide or freedom to choose and so forth. And I think that that is, that's something that, you know, we need to um, bring into conversation, particularly as we think about what it might look like to reconstruct Roe. Yeah. So is this, I mean, many mentioned that this is something, you know, that, that folks who are anti-abortion have fought for since Roe was, you know, issued, but obviously the, the the political, the, the court dynamics have changed in the last couple of years. I mean, Alexis, is it in your mind really about that, about the makeup of the Supreme Court? Is there anything else going on here, um, either politically or sort of legally? 
Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, the intent to fight has been around for for forty nine years for sure, right? And and um, you know, and and there have been, there's been harassment of providers, shaming of patients, you know, killing, murder, right, of of, of uh, providers as well. We've seen um, many different attacks on uh, abortion um, over the last forty nine years, but it really is in the last ten years that we see a decade of, or you know, going back to the twenty ten Congress is kind of what I like to earmark it. Um, um, we see a decade of power grabs, right? We see, um, you know, a relentless pursuit after the 2010 Congress when they were able to gerrymander uh, not only Congress, but also a number of state houses in the process. Um, and then once in power, just weaponized rules changes, more gerrymandering, more court packing, till we get to a point where we have in so many of these states where um, every single state, there is a majority of support for um, accessing a Abortion. There literally is no state in the union that does not support access to abortion. We know the national standards somewhere upwards of 80%. But in some of these states, we have a vocal minority, right? Really the tyranny of the minority um, controlling the levers of power. And that's how we have seen um, the introduction of, of so many different bans over the last decade um, in concert, obviously, with the last four years under the Trump administration, focusing relentlessly on court packing um, from, you know, um, the federal judiciary, over 200 plus judges appointed all the way up through the the three on the Supreme Court, cementing that majority. So it has been, you know, it's like an animus towards um, towards a right does not in itself overturn a right. It really is about the structures and the systems that they have played in um, that have gotten us to the point where we are today. Well, Minnie, though, how does that square then politically with what a lot of these folks' constituents want. Because, you know, Alexis laid this out. I know there's, I mean, there's always polling that shows some <laughs> different numbers, but it, but everything I've said does show um, that overall, you know, Americans do support a right to choose. And that even in some of these more conservative states where maybe the numbers are closer, um, there's significant support. So what has been the public reaction in these places? Like, are you seeing pushback? Are there any warning signs for the people who are pushing these types of, of really um, draconian laws? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing a ton of pushback. I think um, there is a lot of sentiment right now, a lot of concern uh, that the extremist uh, legislatures in specific states like Mississippi, Texas, et cetera, have dramatically overplayed their hand. Um, that they're taking a really big political risk and they're doing it to pursue an ideological agenda that totally flies in the face of public opinion. Eight out of 10 Americans support a constitutional right to abortion. Um, you know, the, the challenge that we're facing, and Alexis laid it out brilliantly, is that there are a lot of issues. And I think folks in California probably grapple with this quite a bit. Uh, looking at the rest of the country, there's a lot of issues where the majority of Americans support uh, have support the issue, but can't we can't make progress in Congress? We can't make progress in legislatures. So voting rights, for example, uh, gun violence pre prevention, um, LGBTQ plus civil rights and equality, the Equality Act, for example. Uh, why is that? So uh, we know that we're living in a moment where we are not in majority rule. We have lost a lot of our democracy. We've had a lot of erosion of democratic institutions. So it's really been critical for us to be thinking more broadly about protection of reproductive rights from a frame of democracy protection, because we're not able to move the ball the way we need to. And the extreme gerrymandering in some of these states has really resulted in 
uh, situations where if there was a ballot initiative or a ballot measure or a statewide, for example, in Mississippi, I think it was, what, 10 years ago that they struck down a personhood amendment. And now the legislature, the extreme gerrymandered legislature passed this um, this legislation to shut down the 15-week abortion ban. So how is that possible? Did the, pe- the citizens of Mississippi become that much more conservative on reproductive rights? They did not. So we're not going directly to the people, right? So yeah. I think it's just so important to understand yeah. that nuance. Can I ask the, both of you to weigh in on how you advise people who do support pro-choice policies to talk to folks in their life that might be uncomfortable about this, right? Like it is a much more personal, fraught sort of policy area than a lot of the other controversial ones you just mentioned, of course, and people's religious views play into this, their sort of philosophies. Um, so many, I mean, how how do you sort of advise people, counsel them to have conversations with people that are like, who might say, I would never have an abortion, but I, but I'm open to abortion rights? So, you know, we have a very high profile president of the United States who's Catholic and supports abortion rights. You know, it's right at the top. Uh, And his administration does too. Right, exactly. The Speaker of the House right there in San Francisco. Um, The the truth of the matter is, well, we, we, first of all, we provide a lot of data information. The majority of Americans includes religious groups, right? So we know the majority of Catholics, the majority of Muslims, the majority of Jewish people support reproductive rights. So it's really important to disabuse folks of stereotypes about what folks in their own community, friends, family, their constituents think, really think. Second, we've found, um, we have lost some of the messaging war on some of these issues. It's important to talk about your fundamental freedoms. We find, we've done a lot of research and collaborative work with Planned Parenthood. We just did a briefing for our friends at the DNC last week, where we talked about this, uh, where we like to refresh our friends uh, in the party. Um, A reproductive freedom frame has been much, much more effective in talking about our fundamental rights, our constitutional rights, than uh, pro-choice, pro-life. That binary has uh, become, frankly, so conflated, it's not really effective anymore. So when you talk about personal discomfort with abortion, that doesn't really square with my fundamental constitutional right, my freedom to decide my future, to plan my family. When you frame it as a fundamental freedom, most Americans completely agree with our position. So it's important to not get intimidated by the misinformation and a lot of the false narratives that are out there to know the facts and the data uh, and to speak in the most broad terms about this as a freedom issue. Alexis, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, first I might just challenge, like, I think sometimes what we what we see is this false equivalence that comes into the conversation around abortion rights as if they're, you know, are, they're kind of equal sides when in, when in fact it is a, a majoritarian mainstream issue, right? As I said, in every single state. So, um, you know, and I, th- and it, which may, was not the case actually politically when, um, when Roe was decided, right? And so I think that, that it is important for us to to actually name the progress that has come from people actually having um, uh, uh, freedom, um, the the right to to actually make these decisions over the last 49 years, um, even in spite of the fact that we have a a long way to go in terms of ensuring access because of what has happened in so many of these states. You know, and I do think that the, the, the freedom to decide from freedom from interference from the government, right? I mean, when I say like, you know, regardless of how you feel about how you would, you know, the choice that you would make, which by the way, even saying that is stigmatizing for the people who have, um, you know, you still don't want 
Joe Schmo lawmaker um, down the state house telling you what you can do with your own body. And I think that that actually is a, you know, um, is a way to get to, to think about who are all the people that should be sitting in that exam room making a choice, right? And do you want your partner? Do you want it just to be you? Do you want to bring a friend? All of those things, no one is ever going to say, I want to bring a lawmaker into the room to, to help me make that decision. Even if they're married to one, they might not want a lawmaker in there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Do you find that it's helpful? I, I was interviewing uh, Dr. Michelle Goodwin this morning along with another panel on this. And, you know, she's really, I think, one of the people who has done a good job of framing this in like our historical narrative around control over black and brown bodies, around control over, you know, gender. Um, are, do you find that those arguments are things that people like help them put this into context or do people like shut down and like, Oh, that's a bunch of academic gibber, gibbery jabbish. <laughs> I stand Michelle Goodwin. I mean, like anything she's like, literally I could, I could put her on my calm app and, and just have her read law, her law reviews to me to bed because she's such a genius. Um, and I think she's absolutely right that it, um, that we have to take into consideration history um, into these conversations, even as a movement, right? As a movement that also has to grapple with white supremacy in, you know, in our, in our space and, and the work that we are doing to, you know, address it um, within our, um, within our work. And so, you know, and I think when we see things that come at us, right, um, you know, oh my God, we're like talking about the, what's happening in Texas around trans. We also have the government, the GOP AGs who are like, you know, cl- clamoring over themselves to like, get rid of Griswold, right? To reassess, you know, our right to contraception um, because they thought it was wrongly decided, um, you know, um, uh, against states' rights. And so like these tropes that actually are rooted in race and history um, and structure, I think are really important for us to pay attention to. So yeah, totally agree with that. Yeah, I always find in my job that giving people context, like it it can really, you know, underscore how powerful some of this stuff is, because often we are looking at things within a very sort of immediate, you know, framework. Um, Well, let's get into a couple of these cases. And I am already getting some audience questions. So many, let's start with one, which is how likely is it that Roe will be overturned? And what would be the immediate impact? Um, We've kind of mentioned a lot of these states. There's obviously a, a smattering of different types of laws, but a lot of them would be triggered by an overturning or weakening of Roe, correct? Yes. So we're, uh, I think we're tracking 29 states that have some sort of abortion ban, either in their legislature, a trigger ban already in place. Um, They're working on an SB8 copycat bill. That's the draconian bounty hunting extremist crazy bill in Texas. Uh, Florida's trying to push one through. Um, So 29 states, the majority of the country would immediately be poised to ban abortion. To your first part of your question, um, there, we fundamentally believe there's no way for the court to uphold the 15-week abortion ban in Mississippi and not overturn Roe. It's really important, like I'll repeat it, we, we believe strongly this court is poised, based on the oral arguments we heard, to uphold this ban and to gut Roe. Now, this is important. They may not say, we hereby overturn Roe v. Wade. They likely won't do that. And that will leave some room for interpretation uh, within uh, many parts of our political uh, discourse, but it will unequivocally be clear that for providers and for advocates, that role will be overturned. And Alexis, another question is, is what 
recourse there could be, given the possibility could be overturned. Is there a plan to create a different protection of a woman's right to abortion? I assume this person means federally. Um, and one thing I've you know thought about is like medical abortions or medication abortions, excuse me. Like, is there any federal policy understanding that that can be complicated as well with this uh, Congress? But like, is there any recourse in that way? Uh, well, actually, this week we got an app for that one, right? <laughs> exactly. It's called the Women's Health Protection Act, and uh, the Senate is due to vote on it on on February twenty eighth. Uh, just they just moved it um, out of uh, both the cloture vote on last week. So um, so members are in district right now having conversations with their constituents about why it is so important to support the Women's Health Protection Act. What would what would the Women's Health Protection Act do? It would actually prevent uh, a Florida law like a fifteen we banned from going into effect some of these copycat laws from Mississippi um, because it would establish a, a federal protection to uh, to Roe and to you know particularly on on these um, on on some of these regulations that um, that undermine the the viability standard. So um, so that is actually something that um, that you know we would love to see more people um, engaging with their lawmakers or senators in particular um, because that is legislation that could move forward move forward and actually help us um, in this moment. Um, we also know that, um, look, we, we know um, to, to Minnie's point that um, a lot of people are waiting for the decision, right? We've got Texas, the six-week ban with the bounty hunter provision, and we've got this 15-week ban and these copycat um, bans that we are seeing across the country. A lot of them are, are coming into play, waiting for the, for the SCOTUS decision to come down. Um, and there are uh, about, I think, 12 states that have have trigger ban trigger laws, right? That would already where um, banning abortion is already in their constitution, so they would essentially, um, you know, be triggered through a process to um, to stop providing um, in those states, and then a number of other states are already looking at things within their constitutions. Um, like Kansas, right, to take away the right that's enshrined in the Constitution. There's a ballot initiative to do that work. There are also proactive ballot initiatives, like in Michigan, um, to get, um, you know, uh, the versions of uh, protecting Roe in in um, in their state constitutions. There are states like New Jersey and California um, that have put in, you know, New York, like reproductive freedom acts in, in various ways that ensure that um, that Roe will be, uh, you know, caught up and or access to abortion will be there. So there are all kinds of ways in which, from a from a legislative standpoint, um, states are taking action. Um, and you know, to your point, the the Biden administration has lifted the restrictions on medication abortion. Um, it used to be um, you would, could not access medication abortion through telemedicine. So through telehealth, in many states, they've lifted these restrictions. Um, as you can imagine, many of the same states that have the same bans also have restrictions on accessing tele telemedication abortion. Um, but, you know, but the reality is people, you know, what, what none of these restrictions have done is stop people from seeking abortion. Um, it stopped people from seeking medication abortion. And, um, you know, it's just made it harder. So, um, so the work from a provider standpoint is to really think through how um, the best way to help people gain access um, and do so early um, with medication as possible. Is that something that the federal government uh, could say overrule states on? Like, is that if they're passing laws to ban that or to require, you know, I know some have tried to get around it with like, oh, you have to have an in-person visit or there's other restrictions. Um, 
I mean, is that a, a legal pathway? The, 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 I mean, that is, is in part why we need WIPA. I mean, that underscores, I mean, WIPA. This is the bill she's talking about? Uh, yeah, and just to make sure Californians know, both your senators are co-sponsors of WIPA, so thank them. Uh, please, for us, uh, um, and we will as well. But that is why we need legislation. I, I think the question about what the White House can do and what the administration can do, uh, there's limitations with, with what they can do without Congress. Um, and of course, it could be overturned by whoever's in there next. Yes. Yeah, yeah. As could WIPA. So that's why the next piece of it is elections. You know, we have right. to we have to grow our Senate majority. We have to hold on to the House. And we have to, you know, we have to mobilize around uh, the outcome of this case to make sure to really draw the stark connection for voters uh, that everything's on the line. And we need we need a we need a larger majority in the Senate to get some of these things done, including democracy reform. Well, there's uh, the politics of it as a political reporter always interests me. And I noticed, you know, researching for this, that there are a slew of these 15 week bans that are sort of mirroring the Mississippi law. And I'm just curious why you think they're going that route instead of maybe banning abortion and abortion entirely through a trigger law or things like that. Like, do you think that is a political or a legal calculation or is it just like, you know, easy to to sort of copy and paste the, the legal text? And go I mean, look, to be clear, the, the end game is to end abortion. Like we shouldn't right. be, right? So, but it is a way, um, it, it's a test right? A threshold test to unravel Roe. So if they are able to, to get, you know, basically put, put some parameters around the, the pre-viability standard, right? Two weeks is still not viable. Um, and they're able to, um, you know, to get traction there. Uh, we have no doubt they will then move to the six-week ban or then they will move to the four-week ban, right? I mean, right. But I like looking at a place like Arizona, like they already have a law that would automatically ban abortions if Roe v. Wade was overturned. So then why on a top of that past the 15 weeks? Do you think it's in case they don't fully gut it? Is it like, what's the strategy there? Okay. Interesting. And then I also noticed that some of these states sort of have, I don't know what the word is, but like in Florida, they ultimately are, are I think one house already passed a ban on abortion after 15 weeks. There was a separate one that would have sort of mirrored SB8 in Texas, the six-week ban. Um, is that many, do you think, responding to the politics we have discussed, that there's like a concern that that some of these, even if the ultimate goal, as Alexa says, is to, to ban it entirely, appear to be too extreme? Yes. I think our opposition uh, is unfortunately uh, pretty has has developed some pretty savvy tactics, uh, and frankly, they lead with just basically lying and extreme disinformation and misinformation about abortion. Uh, Susan B. Anthony List, the right wing um, super PAC, has been pushing out uh, ads talking about how 15 weeks is viable and how it's uh, and, and co-opting medical terminology and talking about how this is a European standard and science has advanced and there's a lot of crazy stuff out there. Uh, and there, you, there's a direct line between those, uh, those efforts to normalize and moderate their extremist positions and these, uh, this range of legislation you're seeing pop up in the states. But at the same time, a lot of them have no uh, rape or incest carve-outs, things like that. I mean, though, that always struck me as part of the sort of messaging you know, it was like, oh, well, 
no choice but in these cases like how do you square that alexis again <laughs> because the uh, end, uh, it, i mean how do you square crazy right the end game is to is to end abortion like full stop there's there is no you know and and every single you know effort whether they are mandating um transvaginal ultrasounds whether they are shaming patients um and providers whether they're insurance coverage bans trap laws you know waiting periods all all of these things are designed exactly i mean to to end access to abortion um and and so you know the the reality is um uh there's no need to square i mean you can't you don't need to square it right because you understand what the end game is is to a question you asked earlier marisa which was you know why this law it really why not i mean they've been really great about throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks uh they try and we have need to have the freedom to do that too as a movement uh as a progressive you know reproductive rights movement uh we have to try every tactic and every strategy uh they've been really just audacious about trying every kind of bananas ban and to see which one the court would take up and which one would stick. And so I think that's why you're seeing such a range and such diversity. But I would encourage the political press. I think your line of questioning is great. It's not for us. It's for them. They need to be scrutinized. No, but seriously, like not to be defensive, but they need to be scrutinized about this, right? They need to be scrutinized about why uh, they think that they are pro, that that they're messaging that they are uh, pro-women and yet, yeah. uh, anti-exceptions for rape and incest. Why? Why mm-hmm. these changes? Why are, on one hand, are they positioning their messaging as if they are evolved or evolving as a movement? At the same time, they're getting more uh, barbaric in their tactics. These are good questions. Well, they're looking at the same polls. Um, I, I want to ask you all to respond, not square, <laughs> explain, but to one sort of line of questioning that Justice Coney Barrett brought up, which is like this idea of throwing out adoption as an option. And there's this, I mean, hearing a Supreme Court justice say that was, I think, really, it was surprising to me to hear that. I mean, how, respond, how do you push back? Like what, like, and explain, I mean, you're both shaking your head. I I know why, but explain why. Like, it seems, it's pretty, um, yeah. I'll let you characterize it, Minnie. <laughs> so it's, I'm partially, sh- there's a p- personal reaction I'm having to it and there's a professional. I mean, professionally, like, first of all, this goes back to the commodification of women's bodies and white supremacy. I mean, how dare she, how dare she talk about women as carriers? I mean, that's essentially what she was doing. You know, oh, well, women can just carry these babies determined, then place them for adoption. And that's, it's it's 100% like stone age commodification of women's bodies, particularly black and brown women's bodies. It's outrageous. And folks should have been just disgusted. I myself am an adoptive parent and I'm an advocate for reproductive freedom. So for me personally, it physically made me sick to think about. I would, that someone would imply, I would have that kind of disrespect for my children's birth, you know, original family, their birth mother incredible. So I think, look, that's why, by the way, we are pretty convinced they're going to uphold the Mississippi ban because the kind of stuff that was said in this, in these oral arguments was so over the top outrageous and offensive. Uh, and then taken as just, you know, well, this is the new court. Uh, this is their, uh, this is their philosophy. And there was, you know, analysis done. I mean, frankly, anyway, I, I, it makes me a little irrational. Sorry. I'll stop there. (laughs) 
I don't think you are rational at all, but yeah, Alexis. Alexis, you're very emotional. You know, and it's also interesting, right? Because you look at these, you know, plus one on everything that Minnie said. Um, and then you also look at the state of, of, of well-being and care for kids. In, in, just Let's just take Texas and Mississippi, right? The number of kids that are in foster care, the number of kids that are, um, you know, Exactly. Um, so it just, um, it doesn't comport with the reality of how people live <laughs> and, and, and to be so out of touch, right. Um, to be so, um, misogynistic about how our, how our, we decide to use our bodies and to kind of equate like forced pregnancy as a, you know, as a means to, you know, you only have to be forced to be pregnant, but you don't actually have to hold the responsibility. Um, feels um, it just was quite jarring. I don't. There's a. There's not a word to to put with it. Well, you bring up another. Oh yeah. Well, you brought brought it up earlier. The maternal maternal oh, yeah. morbidity and mortality yeah. rates in Mississippi, for example. I mean, outrageous. The most dangerous time for a woman is when she's pregnant. So this is why when we were talking about Roe being the floor and the ceiling and privacy and viability versus equality and like equal rights, this is why there needs to be a whole fundamental reframing for why we are, this is, this should be our constitutional right. We should have control over our bodies because it's our right to life. It's our right to live. You know, um, it's incredibly dangerous for a woman to be pregnant. It's much more safer for her to have an abortion. That's the medical reality of the moment we're in. That's right. Um, well, you guys brought up another sort of maybe obvious question. Maybe it's a little bit of it, but like, which is, are we seeing any of these states while they pass these laws expand programs to support pregnant women and families to support children once they are born to even support adoption acts? Like, is that you guys are like, no. We can't even get paid family leave. I know exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's crazy. There's not one Republican that supports paid family leave, but we want to. Yeah. We want to push pregnant people into forced birth. But yeah, the quick answer is no. We're not seeing that. Yeah, exactly. No rash. Sometimes I just have to ask the question. For yeah, no, the states that are expanding access, like California, are the states that are also investing in childcare, paid leave, uh, pay equity, uh, all these things. Medical expansion. Yeah. Um, so uh, we have another audience question, which is what proactive strategies beyond defending Roe should we be pursuing? It's an audience question on my side. Yeah, look, I mean, again, so we talked about, about WIPA, which we think is um, critically important this week that uh, folks could be doing or calling people in, in key states um, where, where we could see um, where we need some increased support for WIPA. Um, there is um, uh, the work to support telemedicine and telemab. There's, there, you know, in terms of um, um, softening those restrictions by state, it is, it, this is um, very much state-based work. There is um, obviously a lot of work that needs to happen direct to patient um, support in this particular moment as people are, you know, the reality is people are getting in their cars, they need gas money, they are driving, you know, thousands of miles to, um, you know, to clinics out of state, um, they may need childcare, they may need 
um, you know, some place to stay. Um, so abortion funds are incredibly important. They also need to pay for the procedure. Um, so um, ensuring that um, organizations on the ground that are helping patients navigate and also wayfind their way into other states um, is critically important. Um, you know, I guess the last thing I would just say is that, that there is a very, um, a very real believability gap that is out there. Um, so we've talked about 80% of people uh, supporting access to abortion. Um, in, in a recent poll, only 33% of people um, believe that Roe was actually going to be overturned. And so, you know, the sky is falling and having people engage publicly and mobilize because it is falling and helping them close the gap that the reality is we are six months into uh, into um, uh, Texas' six-week ban. Um, and that has essentially rendered um, abortion meaningless in, in this state, right? We know that abortions have dropped 60% the, the second month um, in Texas. And so, you know, really thinking a lot um, and getting proximate to who is being impacted, because that will, you know, sit with you and, and create, um, you know, there's no kind of action without the urgency and getting that I think is really important. Minnie, I'd love you to jump in. And also having just been in Texas, if you want to talk a little bit more about what is the reality? I, I want to underscore yeah. what Alexa said. We don't have to wait for the court to decide the Mississippi case. Roe has already been rendered meaningless. And the fact that SB8 was allowed to stand by this Supreme Court when they had an opportunity to strike it and they did not uh, tells you everything you need to know. So I was just in Texas doing some campaign work. Uh, I think I'm allowed to talk about it, right? Uh, for the um, basically a, a young Latina immigrant candidate uh, running against Jessica Cisneros. She's amazing. She's running, uh, she's running um, against Henry Cuellar, the last anti-choice Democrat left in the U.S. House of Representatives, completely out of touch uh, with his party, with his constituents, with uh, his state. He actually voted against WIPA right in the aftermath of SB8 in his own state. And he represents a part of South Texas that is incredibly, incredibly fraught and damaged by SB8. So it's really shocking. But I, I was just on the ground. I'm a Texan. Um, it's terrifying what's going on on the ground in Texas. Just because abortion rates have dropped in Texas doesn't mean those women aren't trying to get out of the state to have abortions. They're getting to Oklahoma, they're going to Mexico, they're going all the way to California. Um, so look, I think we have to be drawing more public outrage to all of Alexis's points and we have to have consequences at the ballot box. If we don't this November, the believability gap challenge will be even even starker. Like we have to do our our job is to make sure that all Americans understand what's at stake between June, July, when the court reaches its decision and the November election. I mean, is that a sort of tragic opportunity in in the sense of when you talk about the lack of awareness? Um, you know, I think a lot of people in my in my in my role of pendant hats are like sort of debating whether this could have a really big impact on on the midterms yeah i mean look i think that that the the reality is it is very likely and you know Minnie and i talk about this that you know we're presiding over organizations um uh during the the fall of roe and and what does that mean um to uh to to actually lose a right that we have fought for right i think it's you know it's happened like during reconstruction. Um, you know, there, there are times when our rights have been taken away from us. 
Um, but we also have to think about what does that reconstruction and reimagination look like. Um, and that is um, in the ways in which we've been very intentional about um, centering the work that we have to do around race, around race equity, um, to ensure that the people who are most impacted are at the table and resourced and driving different conversations is a piece of that work, right? It's, it's an opportunity for us to reimagine the movement in a way that is multi-generational, that is um, multiracial and ethnic, um, um, you know, and, and inclusive in a way that is is going to really build more power to, to fight back in all of these states. And so I think that is actually the opportunity that we have to hold from a, you know, hold in the future um, and, and to be prepared to capture the rage in June and carry that rage through the fall and into the midterms where we will see accountability. And I think this is like the untold story um, from the 2017, you know, 2016, obviously we um, uh, had our last president, 2017, um, people were out in the streets marching like never before. 2018, we ushered in the first pro-choice Congress. Um, you know, 2019, uh, we won um, governor's races, uh, state houses, and, uh, you know, in Kentucky and Virginia. And, you know, and there's an ebb and flow, but but the but the arc is still moving towards, you know, um, staying grounded and kind of where, um, you know, support for this issue. So, you know, I think we can, we can kind of sit in the darkness right now um, and really focus our energy on making sure that people have what they need to get care, making sure that um, we are channeling the rage and showing who is, is responsible for, um, for uh, getting us here and holding them accountable in the fall. I think all of those things have to happen. I think your tragic opportunity was beautifully said. Uh, I may steal it or borrow it with your permission. Um, nobody, <laughs> nobody ever, none of us ever wished for this to happen. Uh, that's why we're fighting so hard for WIPA. That's why we're fighting so hard to codify Roe and state constitutions and state legislatures across the country. But again, Roe was always supposed to be the floor. And we wanted the opportunity to re-envision true gender equality, gender equity, or reproductive health equity in a different way. So this gives us that chance. This gives us that chance. And it's not a chance we wish to have happened this way, but it will be, uh, I think, a very uh, rude awakening for the majority of uh, Americans. Um, and again, it's our job, it's our responsibility to really uh, take advantage of the moment um, and make sure uh, this can't happen again. You know, I, I worked for Hillary in 2016. Um, what's just shocking and remarkable to me is in one administration, four years, that president, I won't say his name today, but Either. I couldn't do it. <laughs> able to enshrine a supermajority of extremists on the court. When folks on our side say, oh, it's not all about the court, or you guys are being too hysterical, uh, I don't know if we were being hysterical enough. Like, let's be candid. Everything we predicted came true, but worse, in one administration, one short four years. So if that doesn't underscore how devastating the consequences are of elections, I don't know what will. I'm curious, I mean, as you track what's happening in a lot of these more conservative states, we see places like California, you know, who put together a whole future of abortion council. Um, I think you mentioned New York. Like, what, how important is that? Because I, because this is a huge country, right? And if you are a young woman in the Midwest, California is, you know, New York are very far away. But 
but it, I mean, is it is it about the actual access that that other states can provide, or is it as much about the organizing you're talking about? It's it's about both, to be honest. I mean, you know, they, California and New York will definitely see you know people incoming, right? They they, they already are from uh, just from Texas alone, right? Because we're seeing Texas. You go to New Mexico, Texas patients um, go to New Mexico, and those New Mexican patients are going to uh, Arizona. You know, going to California, and they're 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 making their way there. So it is really important to have work like the Future of Abortion Council in California happening, but California. California and New York's like best export right now is imagination, right? It is about helping us understand what access, truly meaningful access looks like. So when Minnie's talking about the ceiling, what does the row ceiling look like? California has an opportunity to actually dream the ceiling and and show what it looks like, not only to have access, but to have that access um, funded by uh, by um, by the state, um, because it is it's essentially it's normalizing the fact that abortion is healthcare. So that is the true power, I think, of what's happening right now in California. Plus one to everything Alexis said. And then I'll add that the majority of Americans live in these urban centers. So the fact that we have folks like, you know, the governor of California really pushing the envelope and doing big, bold things, 100% will help us reimagine a future, a true uh, reproductive equity future. But it also is a great template and model for mayors of big cities uh, in some of these tougher purple states, in some of these red states to really push the envelope. It's a collaboration. It's an opportunity to really grow and expand the footprint of the work we could be doing together. So it's so important. Yeah. As you spoke, Alexis, one thing that struck me is um, I would love for you to kind of talk a little bit about reproductive rights in general and like access to health care within this framework, because I think we focus so much on this obvious for obvious reasons. But it's really part of a constellation that, that clinics like Planned Parenthood provide in terms of support for families and women. Right. Yeah, I mean, look, you can you just look at the last two years of COVID, right, to understand um, how important um, sexual and reproductive health care and health care um, is, how, how vulnerable health care is for, as a, from an infrastructure standpoint, right? If, like Planned Parenthood sits as part of a public health care, you know, um, infrastructure network. Um, and, and what we saw during the early days of COVID were patients whose bodies were largely being deemed essential workers who, you know, I would see every morning getting on, you know, the, the, the A train, you know, to go down and open up the hospitals, be on the night shift for the nursing homes, what have you, but being those, those, those bodies that were keeping the bare minimum of what we could have open, open. And we were literally naming that their bodies were essential. And in, in state after state where they were doing that, and those bodies, largely black and brown, um, they're, they're, they were being told that they couldn't do things with their bodies, right? And so, you know, when you think about healthcare broadly and the, the barriers to, um, to accessing uh, care, you know, your ability to pay, your ability to argue with your insurance company as to whether or not they're going to pay, right? Like that's an actual luxury. Um, when you're talking about the, you know, the transportation, you know, you're talking about all of the ways in which the bias operates in, in, in discrimination in, um, in healthcare systems. We're looking at this 20% increase in the maternal mortality rate as, as evidence of that. That is a um, just having the right to access healthcare broadly does not actually um, uh, help you access it. So thinking about you know um, for Planned Parenthood, we 
we do everything through the lens of our patients. And so, um, yes, we're fighting for access to sexual reproductive health care, um, including abortion. Um, but we also need to, in community to make sure that they have access to the things that they need in order to get there. Right. Um, and we know that they may come to us for things like, you know, uh, birth control or an STI testing or an abortion. And they may leave and be experiencing other kinds of indignities. And so it's important to stand in all kinds of ways around this barrier to, to care. Before we get to our last question, Minnie, I would love if you could just sort of underscore something we opened with, which is who an overturning of Roe would disproportionately impact? Like, what are we talking about when we talk about sort of the, just the demographics of, you know, who's able to travel versus who, you know? Yeah, it's all of our traditionally underserved communities, predominantly people of color, but it's also folks in rural areas who already had limited access. Um, we have, uh, it's going to, it's LGBTQ plus communities, you know, folks who are not, do not have uh, confidence in the healthcare system, don't have health insurance, don't have the ability to access care as it is because of the pandemic, um, who may not be in a traditional uh, insurance coverage model. Uh, so there's a whole host of communities that are going to be disproportionately affected, but it's the traditional underserved communities that were already fraught in terms of their access to health care that will be devastated first. Um, and I assume younger people. Yes. And yeah. well, younger people, uh, although I think the most common, I, 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 this is a fact I learned when I worked for Planned Parenthood, the most common, uh, I think, stage of life for abortion actually is when a family already has one or two children. Um, so it's actually a lot of, you know, pregnant people in their 30s. So it's not, you know, the teen mom uh, stereotype. Right. Um, and that's important Absolutely. to understand, too. All right, you both are wonderful. We are going to end with an informed tradition, which is to ask our speakers, what is your 60-second idea to change the world? No pressure after an hour of deep thoughts, Alexis. <laughs> I'm going to shout out some uh, Bay Area folks that we have been working with, um, AORTA, um, uh, amazing uh, group of leaders um, on what it means to actually adopt a Black feminist praxis, my leadership team, and thinking about how are we going to transform the organization and the work in order to meet this particular, you know, need for our patients, but also um, inside of the movement, given, you know, many described um, who is impacted. Um, and um my 60 second, you know, view would be to, you know, if all government and corporate leaders went through the same praxis and framework and they were able to actually think about how to build systems and structures uh, around those who have experienced the most marginalization and resource them in ways um, uh, that we, you know, that, um, you know, many other communities may take for granted, um, I we could build a very intentional, um, expansive and inclusive, uh, you know, super democracy, a super majority of, of ways um, to be. And it would be one of abundance and joy. Perfect. Minnie, your thoughts? I was going to say something similar. When I was uh, in the administration, we had this massive uh, government-wide race equity uh, project where we applied a race equity lens to every aspect of our government work. And it was a uh, it was really transformative for a lot of us. I mean, I've done race equity work in 
pieces throughout my career, but not in this way, but it's very similar to what Alexis is talking about. So I'll add applying that, applying that same kind of lens to our political work. You know, earlier this year, uh, some of our groups uh, collectively decided to, you know, change our endorsement policy around voting rights and fill the filibuster. Um, I think we need to be more, I would love to see us this is a path that was started by my predecessor at, at NARAL, so I, I can't take credit for it. But I think collectively, as progressive organizations, we need to be much more intersectional in our organizing. You know, so we need to be more thoughtful about, you know, what is reproductive, what what does reproductive freedom, you know, hinge on? And as I said before, it's really erosion of democratic institutions has been the challenge for us and may really pushing through uh, policies that the majority of Americans support. So uh, I would love to see a lot of us doing a lot more work around civil rights, voting rights, not putting it in a box saying, well, this is voting rights and this right. is repro and this is climate justice and this is this. We should be fundamentally examining threats to our democracy and collectively working together in partnership. And that's beginning to happen. Uh, and I think that can also be done in a joyful and abundant way. There's pl- it's, We should have an abundance mentality as we're doing this work too and not be uh, competing for resources. Thank you for ending on a positive note. It's always nice to give people a little bit of hope. Um, So much thanks to Alexis McGill-Johnson, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Federation of America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, and Minnie Tamaraju, president of NARAL Purchase America. And thanks to our audience for joining us today. If you want to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making in-person and virtual programming possible, you can go to commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Marisa Lagos from KQED. Thank you. Stay safe and healthy. You've been listening to a podcast of Inform, an innovation lab at the